Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. The messenger's mouth was heavy, and he couldn't repeat his words. So the Lord of Kulaba made a tablet of some clay and inscribed the words there while he remembered so as to have a record. That fascinating account is from a Sumerian epic poem, Enmerka and the Lord of Arata. It's a bit too neat an explanation for the birth of writing to be totally convincing, but it's worth mentioning because Sumeria was one of the first places where writing emerged about 3000 BCE, a few years before the poem was written. We're talking about the history of writing this week, One of the problems that comes up when researching early forms of writing is how to deal with ancient parchments that are too fragile to unroll. Here's Tim Weiss of Cardiff University speaking on the Naked Scientist podcast, Will It Rain Tomorrow? Parchment is skin. It's dried skin that's been salted and limed and stretched and beaten and had hot water poured over it, trying to make a smooth writing surface. I then got more and more involved with samples where the documents had effectively turned from the collagen into gelatin and actually glued themselves together. Thinking outside the box, Dr Weiss went to Graham Davis, a specialist in dental x-rays. Tim gave me a number of parchment samples and uh, we just rolled up a small piece, uh, put it in a container, put it in the x-ray system and sure enough we, we could see the ink on it. And it looked so good that when we sent it to Tim he thought we were just this was some kind of mock-up and I had to say to him, no, this is actually reconstructed from x-ray views of it and he was quite impressed then. Science technology coming to the help of cultural heritage. That's how we like it on Naked Reflections. It seems neither Socrates nor Jesus wrote anything down, which is odd to me. But my guests have plenty of publications to their names. They are Dr. Esther Miriam Wagner, Executive Director of the Wolf Institute, Miriam carries out extensive research on the Geniza manuscript collection housed at the University Library here in Cambridge. And Dr. Laura Davis, Director of Studies in English at King's College, Cambridge. Let's start with you, Miriam, because I didn't realise until a few moments ago that you initially studied Akkadian. So tell us a little bit more about parchment, paper and, and how all this writing developed. So, yeah, I studied Akkadian because I grew up in a different sort of educational system in East Germany in the early 90s. Uh, education was free. I think university education is still quite free in Germany. So you could study whatever you wanted. And I was very, very keen on languages. So I studied sociology just for the heck of it uh, for like three or four years uh, before I then changed to to Arabic. But I really didn't like studying Akkadian because of the tablets, because of the cuneiforms. When I studied Akkadian, I realized that I'm really an alphabet person. It's very, very difficult to read things in Akkadian because they have this complex system of little cunes, of little arrows, uh, and you have to be able to basically read a, a sign that consists of 20 different arrows going in different ways. And that's not really something that I was very, very comfortable with, I think. I'm an alphabet person. And what about you, Laura? Are you an alphabet person, an ideas person, a, a, a sign person? So I'm certainly an alphabet person rather than a science person. But broadly speaking, my interest 
is in how our interactions with text shape our understanding of ourselves as subjects. So I'm particularly drawn to the 18th century because of its contradictions. It's a culture of print, of the rise of newspapers, democratisation of access to texts and to reading. But it's also a period that's intensely interested in uh, ancient cultures and in the difference between what it means to live in an oral culture and what it might be like to be a literate person. Well, let's go back to that early period. Miriam, is it true that the earliest writing was kept for recording purposes? Yes, I mean, that's the theory, especially with cuneiforms, that you would have little markers on sacks of grain. And this is also something that we see all over the world. People don't start writing because they want to write sort of belletristics or they want to you know, read novels. People write because they have a pragmatic need to record something. So all over the world, the first sort of evidence of writing is usually in the context of accounting for tax purposes, you know, make sure that the king or the ruler gets the fair share of crops and money. So, yeah, I mean, like with everything else, the real pragmatic need behind writing is usually to do with economics. So when and how does writing develop to express thought and narrative? Well, it comes pretty soon after, I think. You can really see the spread of alphabets from the various places where it is invented. Um, And it's invented first in Sumeria. And from there it spreads and it sort of fertilizes ideas of writing. So, for example, early alphabetic writing the first alphabets were in cuneiform, and then people thought, oh, actually, we could also probably have symbols rather than these sort of quite difficult to read cunes. For example, I mean, our alphabet, um, Latin, comes from Greek alphabet. Greek alphabet comes from Phoenician. Basically, the Phoenician alphabet consists of originally symbols, like, for example, the letter for A, alpha, is the head of a bull. So you have the head of the bull, and then in the Greek alphabet, it's sort of tilted 90 degrees to the side, and then, you know, That is basically the letter R. So people came up with these sort of uh, systems because they understood that it's much easier to have one sign only for each sound. But basically, the invention of writing is infectious. It's invented in Sumeria first. It's invented in China at some point. It's invented in Mesoamerica. And there's a debate about whether it's also invented in Egypt or whether the Egyptians were sort of spurred on by seeing Sumerians sort of write something down and then they also invented hieroglyphics. In your uh, field, Laura, there was a resurgence of interest in early writing. So there's an attempt to conceptualise how it is their supposedly sophisticated literate culture emerged. So we see the writing of a number of what we might call progressivist histories, which seek to chart a development from kind of primitive to sophisticated, oral to literate, passionate to rational um, They're interrogating these binaries as much as perpetuating them. Significant 18th century figures such as Samuel Johnson express quite extreme views about what is possible in a culture without writing. So he's extremely dismissive of oral cultures and suggests that they have no capacity for memory, which surely is contradictory. Um, He suggests that nothing can be held in the mind, so they're not capable of predicting the future. He suggests that in a culture such as that, it can't be possible to build up bodies of knowledge. Others obviously take a different view, but he really um, regenerates 
I suppose, attention to what a language and a technology of writing can do. Interestingly, he's also trying to write a dictionary and he quickly finds that his task is impossible. And he writes in the preface to the dictionary that he's attempting to lash the wind, but has found that the syllables run out of control and the words can't be contained. So he also understands that languages are kind of living things, not the kind of stable, truth-holding ideas that he wants them to be. Such a wonderful term to lash the wind. I have to remember that one. Miriam, was writing and reading for that matter simply an elite thing? Well, it really depends on the culture and also what we understand as writing and reading. I mean, you know, in the period that Law works on, of course, writing was seen as producing these very intellectual texts, philosophical, uh, literary texts. But of course, if you say that writing also includes all sorts of accounting, you would always have had scribes who would record things, for example, in the Egyptian courts in Sumeria. The sort of the capability of writing uh, depends on your religion. For example, in the Middle East, Jewish communities were always much, much more literate because of the whole ritual of connecting religiosity to studying and learning. Hence, we have, I mean, the alphabetism rate in Egypt in the 10th, 11th century is estimated at 90% of male uh, urban Jews sort of being able to write. And it's interesting that we tend to think of reading and writing as uh, coming together, but it's not always the case, of course, that you necessarily can do both. It might depend. So when we try and estimate literacy rates in Europe uh, from, say, the 1600s, it's difficult to do because often you'll have to use, for example, marriage registers to see whether or not people were able to sign their names or were only capable of writing an X. But because they could do that, it doesn't necessarily mean that they could read extended prose or they might be able to read the Bible because of practice and because of associating the words with the sounds that they'd heard out loud. But again, they may not be able to read in another genre. And I mean, literacy rates, I think, are still surprisingly low in the period that I work in. As I've said, it's hard to know precisely, but we're talking maybe 30% or so of men in 1640s might be literate and sort of double that by the mid 18th century and approximately kind of half for women. So you're looking at about 40% literacy rates for women in the mid 18th centuries. And again, it varies by by religion and and cultural group. But it's not the case that absolutely everyone um, is reading novels all day. Well, of course, you bring up the subject of religion and there is the issue of the revelation through scripture. Um, The Quran, of course, is known as the perfect revelation. Jesus is known as the Logos, the word of God. What implication does that have for our understanding of writing and the transmission of ideas? Well, I mean, this actually sort of also relates to something that Laura mentioned earlier, oral culture. And of course, the Quran initially, a revelation that is only transcribed as an oral work rather than written down. It's only written down at a much lighter period. But again, if you have, like in the case of the Jewish communities, because the knowledge of the scriptures is such an essential thing, it means that being able to read it, again, coming back to the reading and writing dichotomy, be able to read it is the most important point. So people would be able to read, but learning to write is again something that comes out of pragmatic need. Do you need to be able to write? People would, for example, often use scribes to write their own personal letters. Even if you could write, you might use a scribe because it's something that's seen as not befitting your station. I mean, we know of merchants who wouldn't write letters themselves because it would have been 
not the right thing. You would have a junior person who would actually take dictation from you. You wouldn't necessarily write yourself. My grandfather, for example, I mean, he was an avid reader of newspapers and of sort of cheap novels, but he couldn't write himself. He could just about write his name. So even in the 20th century, you still have this big contrast between writing and reading. And then this is something I work on. Of course, there's a real difference also between language, speech and written language. I mean, there is two different worlds. The purposes of communication in writing and reading are completely different. When you write something down, you know it's going to be there for posterity. You know that the person who engages with what you've just said in, in writing has actually a chance to read through it again and again. So it leads to all these complexifications of language. You have complete different forms developing. And of course, in our modern period, also the the way that we write has completely changed the way that we speak because we now emulate written forms of language rather than like our ancestors who would speak in a, in a complete different sort of dialectal way, who would speak with local norms in mind. We now have this great leveling through writing also. So from my perspective, one interesting group that I've studied in relation to this question is early Methodist women. So there's a very particular culture of writing within early Methodism. And so I studied a group of self-written spiritual conversion narratives prompted by the request of Charles Wesley to a particular group of women in Bristol in the 1740s who were asked to explain how it is they'd reached a position of sanctification or at least begun their journey. And it's very, very interesting that it's not so much actually the quality of the writing that's important, but the sort of spiritual practice of accounting for oneself on paper. Interestingly, though, it's precisely that practice that both some critics think that spiritual autobiographies are one element in the development of the novel. But it's also the case that those narratives are criticised for being overly mimetic in the sense that there was a very closed system of phrases to describe extremely personal spiritual experiences. So for a long time, literary critics ignored these kinds of texts because they felt they were somehow inauthentic because they sounded all the same. But of course, they were acting or enacting themselves into a community by the act of writing and by the manipulation of those core concepts or phrases. Let's press save there. This is Naked Reflections and I'm Ed Kessler. My guests are Esther Miriam Wagner and Laura Davis. And we're talking about the history of writing, the written word, the printed word, the electronically generated word. Part of this story is the emergence of periodicals and journals with a potential wide distribution. In the world of science, regular journals disseminating news about new discoveries did not start appearing until the second half of the 19th century. Since then, they've become increasingly specialised. Here's Melinda Baldwin of the American Institute of Physics speaking on the Naked Scientist podcast, Publishing and Politics and How Science Gets Made. If you go back to an early issue of Nature, you know, one published in, let's say, 1870, just about anyone could have read most of the articles. By 1900, it's completely different. And then by the 20th century, you have articles that are so detailed and so specialized that not only can you not understand this biology article if you're not a scientist, you can't understand this biology article if you're not a biologist. Literary and political periodicals started earlier than science journals. The coffeehouse culture of the 18th century must have been a big breakthrough in writing and the dissemination of writing. Laura? 
So the coffee house culture of the 18th century was, of course, made famous by Habermas's work, The Structural Transformation of the Public and the Bourgeois Public Sphere. In it, he has a sort of myth, I think, of an ideal coffee house in which everybody is welcome and in which the conversation is highbrow, a kind of exchange of ideas. It's true there were coffee houses and people did attend them, but I think it's more likely that they were discussing trade and news and gossip and that it wasn't quite the sort of idyllic intellectual space that he suggested. Probably the most important driver of developments in this period is newspapers, actually. So these start emerging in the late 1690s and are perpetuated by the intensities of the War of Spanish Succession, which essentially just generated news stories and a kind of thirst for news. They're called, those people who want news every day were called newsmongers or quidnunks, so what nows, and there were all sorts of caricature representations of these people as kind of sucking the news out of the papers. This is important because these newspapers develop a wide range of readership. So there were no particular developments in printing technology in the period, but there's a commercial imperative for expansion. So those newspapers then move into early periodicals like the Tatler and the Spectator and huge numbers of intensely party political pamphlets, which generate uh, a particular kind of aggressive, actually, public sphere of uh, debate and, well, satire and ridicule. So Laura touches on the importance of paper, Miriam, and that's also true in your field as well, isn't it? I mean, paper is a big educational game changer. We see that when paper appears anywhere as a much cheaper writing material to previous writing materials, especially parchment, we really see this intellectual explosion. Um, Paper comes to Iraq in the 9th century from China. There's these great accounts of people of all faiths meeting in these in these places and discussing philosophical matters and theological matters. We see the same development then when paper moves around the Mediterranean, moves into Egypt in the 10th century, it moves into um, Spain into the 11th, 12th century. And everywhere where paper arrives, we see this explosion of, of, of intellectuality and culture because people can so much easier impart uh, knowledge and can so much easier also sort of write things down that up that that get that keep on being preserved for example one thing i've worked on is how language has become much more complex uh, how we started to use subordination for example when writing came about before that you would use sort of very simple clauses but then because of writing you had these binding words between sentences that allowed you to express quite complex thought and of course it's a bit tricky because in oral cultures, you probably had similar mechanisms. You would create very, very highbrow registers. For example, in Arabic poetry, you would still have quite sort of literary registers in the spoken language. But the way that I think spoken language has been in, in contact with written language and how they sort of changed each other in the course of writing, I think is quite significant. And that's really interesting because the period that I work in, the tension is to a kind of a standardization of language. So it's partly dictionaries, but it's also a kind of class consciousness that creeps in and about uh, regional divergences too. So I mentioned Samuel Johnson and his dictionary earlier. Of course, his biographer, James Boswell, is Scottish, and he embarks on a regime of banishing Scotticisms from his language. There were all sorts of dictionaries, uh, sort of primers that were produced to help you to sound more like a sort of uh, standard male 
southern elite gentlemen. Some of that, of course, is bled into our sort of received pronunciation and histories of what is possible on the BBC and all of that. But it really appears in that earlier period. And was there a reaction against that as well? Or is that a modern phenomenon? There certainly is, um, not necessarily by the production of, r- of rival dictionaries, but we see it emerging in labouring uh, class poets, for example, who determinedly and proudly use their local dialect, um, whether that be unconsciously and naively or on purpose. So somebody like John Clare would be an example of someone who is so proud of his Cambridgeshire um, uh, dialect that he uses it to great um, original effect in his in his poetry. Well, let's talk a little bit about the implements as we we, we come into the modern period, if you like, before we get onto texting and computer. Um, the humble pen. Tell us a little bit about that pen. What did the creation of the pen do for writing? So of course, with cuneiform, you basically had these little sticks, these little styluses that would allow you to do imprints of these cuneiforms. And then when you started to have alphabets, you started to have the other forms of of implements. You had quills, you had pen reeds, you had all sorts of plants that you would model into a pointed stick, which you would then basically dip into some sort of liquid. But of course, before that, you also had other little sort of pieces of wood with which you would scratch, for example, into wax. I mean, something that, that most people wrote on for thousands of years was wax tablets, because none of these have been preserved and we don't have that rich culture that was probably produced on wax uh, because it's just not a durable material. I mean, the quill pen exists still up until the 18th century, although we start to see metal pen nibs emerging. So it's not entirely clear when that was, but it's also possible to look at clues. So in Samuel Pepys's diary, he writes of a silver pen with ink in it, and that's in 1663. But you don't really see the patents for the pens that we recognise as fountain pens until the first 10 years of the 1800s. But what's really interesting to me is that actually with printing, you return to that mechanism of impressing upon a surface that's there with the wax tablet and of course is there when you're trying to inscribe symbols onto other materials and you know frequently people mention John Locke's understanding of the mind as a tabula rasa but he doesn't in fact actually use that phrase he says let us imagine a mind um, as a sheet of blank paper void of all characters so it's quite interesting that he specifically is thinking about paper and his language for the acquisition of ideas through experience is repeatedly the language of impressions so he talks about ideas being impressed upon the mind and that turned out to be really important for understanding the other meaning of the word character right that it can be both a letter but also the sense of somebody's collected attitudes and moral status etc so that that sense of being impressed upon is something that humans do but also how they're understanding themselves as being shaped by the world around them and you see it also in personal writing that people um, in order to create immediacy, immediacy in writing between them and the person that they're writing to, often they use regional forms. You would use a form that is um, sort of consciously dialectal or consciously below the highest register in order to create some sort of intimacy between you and that person. And that's something that, of course, um, we still all do. I mean, you know, you can see that in your, in your texting or in, in sort of more informal writing. But it's something that people have been doing for, for basically thousands of years as well. 
That seems such a long time ago, Miriam, and I suppose we've got to bring it right up to date. And the change is the fundamental change in the nature of writing with smartphones, with texting, with all sorts of telecommunication that's available. So let's just draw this podcast to a close and discuss the fundamental change that's going on right now. Has writing changed forever? Laura? The purposes of writing remain as they always were, you know, storing, retrieving, manipulating information, communicating information, disseminating information. All of those things are still what we use writing for. We still have a range of relationships to writing, just as we always did, so that a text message is different from a postcard, which is different from a novel, which is different from a religious text. However, The sense that we might have is of perhaps a changing relation between how we speak and how we we write. I wouldn't say that this is fundamental. These kinds of things have been shifting over history. But there has been some work on uh, electronic communication and hypermedia texts, etc., as a kind of secondary orality, so a, a kind of mode of communication that shares more qualities than previously with oral communication. We also, of course, are using emoticons and little symbols to convey information successfully or or not, I don't know. And what do you value in the act of writing? We're being forced, aren't we, to think about new kind of codes of what is acceptable, polite behaviour. So I'm sure many families have had debates about whether or not it is in fact okay to send a text or an email rather than to handwrite a thank you letter of a child to its grandmother or auntie. And it's really interesting because there must be something in that conversation about the labour of writing on paper or there's something too easy or quick about texting or emailing. And so that raises questions, doesn't it, about what it was that we were valuing in the act of writing. When I've been researching letter writing, one way of conceptualising the letter that really sticks with me is a theory of the epistolary gift. So the sense that a letter is a gift rather than a merely a kind of mechanical exchange of ideas. And so I think there's something in writing that has a value above and beyond the mechanics of it and above and beyond the content of the material that's conveyed in it. And we've sort of come full circle, right? I mean, our letters started out as symbols of houses or animals, and now we're sort of going back to that. What I absolutely love about uh, modern communication is that I seem to have a very particular way of communicating via text with pretty much all the people I communicate. I have various sort of symbols that only the person I write to understands. So we're sort of going into a very secretive mode of communication and in sort of, you know, in tiny little micro networks of sort of writers and registers, which I think um, would be really interesting for sociolinguists to study in, in 500 years time. But I must say, I appreciate it that, you know, we're moving away again from alphabets now towards pictures. Does that mean we've lost the connection with writers? Because we, all of us, are writing so much less. We're using our keyboard rather than our fingers. I mean, there's a difference, isn't there, between the act of writing and the ability to imagine yourself as a writer. So there's a kind of agency and a degree of authority that comes with being able to express oneself on the page or on the document on screen that um, is not afforded to you if you cannot construct sentences, move words around, etc. So I think 
we haven't lost the historical tradition of what it means to wield a quill or a pen or a brush, but we may have a different uh, relation to those kind of myths of famous authors who sat down in the morning and wrote a whole novel without stopping. It's a Hunter S. Thompson is one of those. That isn't quite the way in which we're experiencing writing now. I was scarred as a child of having bad handwriting. I think I'm probably a left-hander who was trained on the right. I have terrible, terrible handwriting. So for me, the computer revolution came just in time for me to actually write because I can't write by hand. I just can't. And I cannot express sort of complex thought in handwriting. All my complex thought comes from me being able to use a computer and to sort of move worlds around. So the, the thought process of writing through computers is completely different. It's something that has benefited me because I can really sort of work on a sentence for a long time until I'm really happy and satisfied with it. Something I would never have been able to do on paper. So for me, and probably quite a few others like me, actually, computer has enabled us to write for the first time. Well, to mix my metaphors, I'm putting down my quill and reaching for the blotting paper because we've reached the end of this podcast. I'd like to thank my erudite guests, Esther Miriam Wagner and Laura Davis. And we'd like to hear from you at nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac.uk. Let us know where we're going wrong or what we're getting right. If you'd like to catch up with our back catalogue, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to the Naked Reflections podcast wherever you access your podcast or at nakedscientists.com slash reflections. I'll be back with more guests next week. <laughs>